Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Another edition of Inside Boxing Live is here. Dan Kenobi, your host, as always. And we got a fun one planned for you today. We got a guest. We're keeping up with this Legends theme here on Inside Boxing Live. We had Roy Jones, we've had Bernard Hopkins, and we're ending it. Saving the best for last. Uh, I might be biased here. He is a guy that uh, has been around the sport for a very long time. He is the owner and inventor of CompuBox. He is my father. Bob Kenobio is here this week for some really, really fun stories about how CompuBox came to be, uh, the evolution of the service, some great stories about the Four Kings in the 80s, uh, Hagler Hearns, Mike Tyson, you name it, uh, Bob Canobio uh, was there. <laughs> he has been a big part of the boxing landscape, not really someone who's out in the forefront. Uh, he's a humble guy. He likes to stay in the, in the background, you know, provide the service uh, for, for these networks of the last 37 uh, years. And uh, but he deserves his his just due and uh, has some great stories. So I'm really excited to have uh, Bob Kenobio. Uh, do I or do I call him Dad? I've got to figure that out. I'm excited to have Bob on the show this week uh, to talk some stories uh, and then uh, also talk about the, the current day too because he has uh, he has seen it all. But this upcoming week, another slow week in the in the boxing world. There's an ESPN card. We're going to see Alunga uh, uh, Makabu finally fight at cruiserweight, and of course that WBA fiasco with the heavyweight title with Trevor Bryan and Jonathan Guidry. It's a Don King card. Uh, that's a, a separate pay-per-view. Another slow week. We're getting to the end of January. Now we're going to head into uh, February where we see Keith Thurman and Mario Barrios. I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm a big Keith Thurman fan. You can say what you want about the guy, but he moves the needle. Uh, the guy, um, he, we're going to see. We're going to see what, what Keith Thurman has because I, I believe if he wins, uh, a fight with Crawford is looking more and more likely, but he has to get past Barrios. Didn't look that great. Uh, all the way hasn't fought. I mean, we saw this past weekend with, with Gary Russell. Inactivity is a killer. You can't take two years off like Gary Russell Jr. did when he lost to Mark Bexago. You can't take two years off like Keith Thurman has done, hasn't fought since the Pacquiao fight, and expect to still fight at the top level. I don't know what, how you guys rate Mario Barrios. He, he's no slouch. Uh, you know, he's a top 10 type of guy. I know it's his first fight at 147. But we're going to see what Keith has. Father time waits for no one. It clearly affected Gary Russell. I know he had a lot of things going on outside uh, of the ring with, with his family life, but you can't deny it. an aging guy over 30, inactive, shoulder injury uh, pops up, re-aggravates it in a fight, doesn't throw a jab from the fifth round on and nearly beats Mark Megsayo. Uh, that was a, a heck of a fight, a heck of a card over on Showtime. It's just some quirky things uh, with uh, referee Eddie Claudio who missed a knockdown. In that Lucas fight uh, versus King Tug, uh, what, are we going to get replay in boxing? Like, what's the story? Some states have it, some states don't. It's a we're in 2022, and a, a sport not having replay is it's it's archaic. Uh, but I'm not shocked at all because this is boxing where you can't. You would think like common sense should prevail, but it it, it didn't. Uh, that was this past weekend uh, over on Showtime. Some good stuff. Mark Magsago, new champion at featherweight. I don't rate him that highly as a champion. I thought he could have really exposed Russell 
Russell almost won that fight with one arm. You got to give him some props, uh, grit, determination. You can, you know, I know he has a lot of detractors, Gary Russell, but you know, it's not exactly the worst thing to see the title change hands, knowing how inactive Russell is. And now he's going to be um, sidelined with that shoulder injury. Uh, some other news uh, in boxing uh, this past week, Shakur Stevenson and Oscar Valdez reportedly have both signed on the dotted line for a unification bout at 130 pounds, which is going to be a heck of a fight. It goes up to the top of my uh, can't miss fights of the year early on so far. And they're looking at April 30th. Uh, for that date, like I said, it's a two belt unification. Stevenson coming off of that big win over Jamel Herring and Valdez had an up and down year last year. He had his, the biggest win over Burchelt where that was a coming out party for him. And he followed it up with the PED saga and then a lackluster performance against Robson Conceição, who fights also this weekend on ESPN. I love that ESPN is putting this fight on regular cable. You know, that keeps with their commitment of getting away from uh, pay-per-view and putting fights back on regular ESPN. So I expect to get a huge rating. And the story of this fight is going to be the defense of Stevenson. And if Valdez is going to be able to land one of his patented hooks on uh, Shakur Stevenson. Stevenson's one of the best defenders in all of boxing. Only getting hit with 4.7 punches per round. 12% of his opponents. That's the uh, landing on Stevenson. Keep in mind, the average at 130 is 16.4 punches landed per round and 28%. That just shows you how good uh, Stevenson is. But Valdez has also improved his defense. As we knew from Valdez coming up the ranks, he was a brawler. Remember those fights where he broke his jaw and he was out for a while? He has always had the reputation of being more of a, of a brawler and being, and being more of a um, fan-friendly fighter. But ever since linking up with Eddie Reynoso uh, and Valdez, as he's seen his defensive metrics go up. You know, he's only getting hit with 17%. That's Valdez since uh, linking up with Eddie Reynoso, uh, five or six fights. So uh, it's going to be more of a chess match, I think. If you're looking for a brawl, it's not going to be that type of fight. It's going to be an exciting fight because I think Stevenson, anytime he steps in the ring now, come, especially coming off of that Herring fight where uh, his offense was on point. I, I can't wait for this one. I think it's a can't-miss fight of the year. And it just so happens to fall on the same date that we're thinking we're going to get the Katie Taylor-Amanda Serrano fight. I mean, that's just boxing, right? If you're a boxing fan over the last four years, since the proliferation of all these platforms. We have dueling cards a lot. It's a shame uh, that if these fights do end up on the same card uh, or the same night, excuse me, um, hopefully that the, they don't go up against each other in terms of the fights going off. Hopefully one starts before the other. Uh, but that's going to be a great night at, at MSG. If we get Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano, it's the biggest fight in women's history. It's a, it will be a celebration of, of women's boxing and uh, what's coming off of a great year they had in 2021 it's a really good fight too and then also it's april 30th is one week before cinco de mayo and as we know it's canelo alvarez fight weekend who is he going to choose he, it's where time is ticking for him uh, to choose his opponent is it going to be charlo is it going to be jake paul that's a rumor or is it going to be uh makabu who fights this week over a weekend in warren ohio on that don king card so a lot of things going on in boxing we're getting through january we're looking forward to february but let's get into our interview this week. Here he is, the creator of CompuBox, Bob Kenobia. All right, it's time to bring in our guest this week on Inside Boxing Live. We're keeping up with the legend theme. Uh, he is a legend in our household, the Kenobio house, and he's also a legend in the sport of boxing. He's been in it for close to 40 years. Don't mean to age him. He is Bob Kenobio. He happens to be my father. <laughs> happens to be uh, my boss, happens to be a, a, a grandfather, and I'm aging you for, for sure. But Bob is here 
Uh, and I'm excited to talk about the history of CompuBox and some other things that are going on in the sport. Uh, how's it going, Bob? It's going good, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be mentioned in the same breath as some of those legends that you've had on uh, the last couple of weeks. Roy Jones, Bernard Hopkins. I mean, that's a long <laughs> list. So just to be, uh, you know, mentioned in that, uh, that same breath is an honor. Um, yeah, this is our 37th year, actually. Wow. Uh, so CompuBox yeah. outdates me. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 37 that's, years. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I was on that space chicken talk on Twitter uh, this past week. Shout out to chicken talk. They do a great job, um, you know, illuminating some of the voices in boxing. And it was like a two hour uh, Q&A talking about our company, talking about what we do. And I thought it was awesome uh, that there were so many fans that were interested. The questions were great. And uh, I didn't mind answering them because I'm, I'm more active on Twitter than uh, say you are. But, you know, in the back of my mind, I was just thinking like, you're the one that should be on here. You know, you're the one with the stories. Uh, you're the one that's seen almost every punch thrown and landed since like the 80s, which is, is crazy to me. Uh, so we've done this before, but we haven't done it in a while. So let's go all the way back to 1985. Please share with us the story about how you came up with the idea uh, how it became, uh, how the wheels got turning, and then we'll go from there. Well, it all started um, back in New Jersey, a place called Sports Information Database. Mm -hmm. uh, Logan Hobson, uh, who was my partner up until uh, 2003, and I were hired uh, by this database to be boxing editors. The idea was to bring these portable computers, which were just becoming popular back then, these 40-pound machines, was the idea was to bring them to venues, um, access uh, data, access research from the, uh, from the database, and also use the computer, obviously, to record whatever live uh, event you were covering. So we were there one afternoon, um, and uh, some guy came in with, the, with, with a tennis program. Mm -hmm. He had written a program. He had gone to the U.S. Open and created what we would call a box score for, uh, for tennis. And I'm sitting there with Logan, and I'm like, we could do this for boxing. We, we love, uh, obviously love boxing. We hated driving to New Jersey, Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, from Long Island. I remember saying, we got to get out of this place. Something, <laughs> I love, love the job, but we gotta, there's something better out there. Um, one thing led to another. We got the idea for the program. We had a program written while we were at the database, um, brought it to uh, Atlantic City for some off t an off-TV show, um, checked out the numbers, make sure the program was working correctly. Um, and then we took it to MSG, who were doing shows, asked if we could use our new product on their show. They liked it recorded it and we then took it to HBO and oh wow um, I, I didn't know that you actually had something to show Ross Greenberg who we'll get to in a second who was at the time a producer everyone uh, probably knows him as the HBO sports president for about 15 years or maybe even more um, but he was a guy like I said on chicken talk he was like an innovator he was a guy the first one to put you know sound in the corners first person to introduce the um, you know, uh, judging, unofficial judges, but I didn't know that you actually showed something 
to Ross. So how did that interview or how did that uh, pitch, I guess, meeting? Well, what out? happened was, like I said, we went to the garden. Um, they were doing monthly shows mm-hmm. and we went to John Condon, who was then the voice of the garden. Um, I didn't really know him. I only had known him from, from seeing him at the shows. And we said, we have this new uh, punch counting program. Would you mind if we, we you know, tried it, displayed it tonight? And back in those days, you had the VCR. So I had mom, mom record the show. I said at nine o'clock, please push record. I'm surprised she was able to do that. She did it, man. She did it. We recorded (laughs) the show. We actually took the uh, VCR, the tape, one of the big, the big old tapes to Ross, popped it in his VCR. Like a VHS? VHS. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, uh, and that's that's how you know how we displayed it. it was one thing to talk about the product, but mm-hmm. to be able to show, they popped a few graphics in, um, and uh, Ross liked it on the spot. It was it was crazy. He asked us a few questions like, "Well, who, how does it work? Do you take one fighter each?" And we said, "Yeah, that's probably the best way to do it." Um, and then his wheels were already turned in. You know, he did. Yes, like you said, HBO had no commercials between rounds, so it was a perfect vehicle to use something like this where, you know, and go to the corners, corners were mic'd, and then boom, pop a stat in. So it was pretty much, you know, right place at the right time, uh, all of the above. It just, everything just, you know, just clicked. I remember walking out of the meeting with Logan because Ross said, okay, uh, this looks good. Flo, who's the secretary, will be in touch with you. You guys are going to Reno, Nevada next month. This was January of 85. He goes, you're going to Reno next month for Bramble Mancini rematch. We walk out of the office and I remember looking at him like, we're in business. It was, it happened that fast. That reminds uh, me of that Seinfeld episode where Jerry and George uh, pitch their episode or their idea, their pilot, and then NBC buys it, and then they like look at each other like, now what? Yeah, okay, now yeah, we better we better catch up on Bramble and Mancini, which we did, of course. We sh- that's where we got the idea to look at. We looked at the first fight, mm-hmm. we counted the first fight. Um, and you, those numbers are probably I think we used on a graphic no, on, on our first show. Yeah, so I just watched um, it. they they were yeah. used, and and Larry Merchant talked over it the first the. Uh, it was Larry and Barry Tompkins. And Barry said, we're introducing a new gizmo. And, gizmo. Then, and then Larry called it a computer toy. And then they showed the first stats, which was probably perfect in hindsight. Like having a rematch is perfect for, you know, now, obviously, 37 years later, we love rematches because we're able to show stats from the first fight. We're able to compare. We're able to see if their pace is the same. So talk, it goes in line or the same theme, like you said, like right place, right time, everything coming into the right place. Uh, but that's nuts to, to, for, for um, Greenberg to buy it or pretty much buy it on the spot. It's just kind of goes in line with who he was, you know, like an innovator, someone that was willing to take these chances, someone that was looking ahead. You know, I know that we saw him uh, the last time I saw him was at that final HBO dinner which was that really a sad night in, in, in reality. And I remember going up to him and just saying like, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you for seeing like a vision uh, and, and being the guy to, okay, because, you know, it's helped our family so much and really, you know, it has helped boxing in, in a way. Like there was no numbers 
before that, but tell, talk to us about that first fight, the, the flight out there, uh, the computer, which I talked about a little bit on Chicken Talk too, and I posted it on, on Twitter as well, was this massive thing, like must have weighed 40 pounds. It was huge. This is before laptops. T- take us through that first like trip out to, to Reno, and, and that night must have been pretty nerve-wracking, but also exciting. Too excited. Honestly, I was more excited than I wasn't really nervous. I just felt like, wow, you know, this is going to be fun. Um, it wasn't so much fun lugging that computer around. Like you said, the thing had to weigh 40 pounds. Um, we would take turns lugging it around the various airports. But um, yeah, the first fight, like I said, I really wasn't nervous. I was anxious to get it going, uh, to get started with the fight. Um we had, you know, we had our headsets on and, and we did a rehearsal and uh, it was kind of like a surreal kind of feeling, you know, it was, I was, we were confident and we were excited and it turned out to be um, a great fight too, because it was uh, Bramble Mancini, um, Bramble had won the first fight, Mancini was such a fan favorite, uh, the Reno uh, event center where the fight was, that probably with 12,000 in the building, they were all uh, Mancini fans, so they were loud, really loud. And the way the fight played out, Mancini threw a hundred something punches around. Man, Bramble had a style where he would have the earmuffs and he blocked a lot of the shots and would counter. He threw probably 800, but landed a higher percentage. Mm-hmm. You know, so right out of the gate, we were in the middle of a uh, a questionable decision because some people thought Mancini won because he pressed the action. Bramble was the counter cleaner puncher. Bramble got the decision, but, and then we got a, the numbers actually got a great ride right after that fight because there were, you know, there were boxing writers back then for newspapers. They're like, there had to be 20, 25 writers at the fight and they all ran with the numbers. So it was really exciting right from the get go. Um, and, uh, you know, we were just, you know, just looking forward to our next show. There was never really any nerves, just excitement. It was probably like you didn't realize what could go wrong. Like you didn't understand. Like now we know, like if our, like the program goes down or something like we we're, we're thinking in our minds, in the back of our minds, like, you know, if something goes wrong. It's part of the job. We have to troubleshoot and we have to, it's live. Maybe like a little bit of ignorance is bliss type of thing where it's like, all right, I'm just, we're just here. Like, who knows what this can be? You know, you didn't have like the weight of, of uh, you know, the dependence on on the service, right? Why well, we didn't never thought about anything going wrong. Like it was like you said, it was ignorance is bliss. That computer had no battery backup. It just That's ran nice. on a plug at ringside. So which was <laughs> taped down like, you know, it was secured like Fort Knox. Well, you and love duct just, tape, so that doesn't surprise me. Paul Hogarth, rest in peace, was our was the techie, and I made sure we taped that baby down. And um, they had the disk drives; they had no hard drive. We had a floppy disk drive. The program was on one drive, and if we ever lost that disk, we were screwed too, because we only had one at the time, <laughs> one copy of it. Well, and what happened disk- if the computer didn't like? What happens if the something happened with the computer or or it didn't like make it or you know it uh luggage i mean you had to check the computer on on flights like it's not like you can go to best buy like we've done that before or if a computer craps out or like go somewhere and, and get a new computer no it would have been a big or we, again we never thought of that either eventually we did get a backup computer we, we carried two computers uh because one trip to London back in the day, I put the computer down to hail a taxi and someone stole it. We got ripped off right off the curb. And uh, that was not guy. a good, that was not a good feeling. <clears throat> so luckily we had a couple days 
um, before fight night and we, we had another computer sent that like, they weren't easy to find out. The first one we bought, we bought it from some guy up in, up on Long Island, but he did get, he told me something I never forgot. He said, redundancy, you gotta have backup, backup. And yeah. it finally sunk in like, you know, we should back the computer up, back up the discs. But at the time we were like flying from the seat of our pants. So it was, you know, we never yeah. thought about what could go wrong. We were just happy to be there, I guess would be the word, because there, there was a big fights back then too. These weren't just, mm-hmm. um, you know, these weren't just weekly club shows we were doing. We did uh, uh, Larry Holmes and uh, David Bay was our second fight. And the third fight, as I've said m- many times, was Hagler Hearns. Wow. We'll <laughs> get to fight that. In comp- at Caesars, third fight in CompuBox history. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, the I remember the computer being so heavy and like as like obviously all uh, my brothers or the family weren't like allowed to even like go near it. Like, don't look at it. That's 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 <laughs> like uh, it was almost like a the you know part of the family at, at some point. That's 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 wild. So, yeah. So the fourth fight or third fight was Hagler Hearns. And that's like a big theme of what I want to talk about is being there for some of the biggest fights uh, of all time. I mean, Hagler Hearns is like, will go down forever. I mean, it's still shared uh, to this day on, on Twitter. People share it almost like <laughs> you see it like once a week, they, they post the, that first round. That must've been a wild night. And of course that first round, uh, I still has some of the middleweight records are still established from that fight. Yeah, it was, we knew, we knew that it was going to be a good fight because, I mean, it was Hagler, it was Hearns. Um, it was the first trip to Vegas, um, Caesar's Palace. It was something I, you know, you, as a kid, you're a young person, you see on TV. And I remember saying, I, I, I would love to get there someday for a fight. And little did I know we'd be sitting ringside working an event like that. Um, again, it was all excitement leading up to the fight. It's a hot day. The sun went down behind the mountains and boom, it's dusk and it's, uh, it's Hagler Hearns. And then the bell rings in the first round. They just, Marvin went straight at Hearns. Hearns, you know, returned the favor and they just, just threw down for three minutes straight. I remember the crowd going crazy um, and I could hear them through my headset, the, the, the noise of the crowd roaring, standing roaring. And uh, the round ends, and I look down, and I see Hagler, 83 punches thrown, whatever it was, 50-something landed, no jabs. Wow. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he didn't throw any jabs. And I look over at Logan's numbers. He had Hearns, 81 thrown, whatever landed. So... That told me that, you know, it was a hellacious round, nonstop punching. And we, we, we came through, we handed the stats were on the money for the amount of punches thrown and landed. So, uh, and then the fight, you know, went two more rounds, but um, you know, it's something we'll, you know, that never forget. And uh, it's gonna be, it'll be hard to duplicate uh, an event like that again. Yeah, geez, I mean, I've seen some good ones in my short time and it must be tough for you to try to compare something to, to that, but that's gotta be the moment where that was like, it couldn't be in a better trial by fire uh, because, you know, I've been there counting, counting these punches live and the crowd gets loud 
and emotions take over. Uh, we're all human. I said that too on Chicken Talk. I mean, we're we're all you know just humans, like judges too. They get swayed, but for that, that is a different type of of beast. That's Hagler Hearns. That's the '80s uh, when boxing was at its highest, at its peak. That's a good trial by fire, uh, and the numbers were on the money. Um, you know, because they weren't too crazy. I think it summed up exactly what went on. Uh, in, in the ring that night that must have been a wild one so then from there uh you guys felt like you know you were established you started to get more more and more uh you know fights were starting to, to pile up there and then i want to go to uh, another super fight and that is uh leonard versus Hagler. and this was a question that was asked as well was do you guys work with any camps and it's not something we do that much any uh, anymore, but it's something you guys did back then. I know that Ray Leonard had hired you guys to come up with a game plan to kind of beat Hagler. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, well, we knew that fight was in 87. We started in 85. So, and Ray Leonard at the time was working for HBO. He was uh, an, uh, an analyst. So we got to know him um, and... Uh, he, you know, took an interest in the stats, and so did his ma uh, manager at the time, Ali Dunlop, uh, was a pretty sharp guy as well. And they uh, actually hired us to um, count some Hagler's past fights. I think we counted like eight to ten of his past fights. And then they brought us into his training camp in January um, in Maryland. Uh, the fight was in April. We came in January when he was doing, I think he sparred. It was two days of sparring. But the gist of it was that after breaking Hagler's numbers down, we found that he started slow. First four rounds, he would throw in the 50s. And then five through eight, he would he would um, crank it up. And then nine through 12, he were, was, was his biggest output. So we, we prepared a uh, breakdown for Ray and for Ali Dunlop and our suggestion um, to, uh, to Ray, to the team, Leonard team was to start fast. Don't give Marvin a chance to jump on you, especially being, being uh, laid off for three years. Ray hadn't fought in three years. So mm -hmm. for him to, uh, to come out and, and be passive would not have been a good strategy. And also based on the fact that Marvin threw his fewest punches in those first four rounds, our suggestion was to come out and, uh, you know, take it to Marvin, be the aggressor. And that's certainly what he did. He, he, and Marvin, sure enough, started slow. The first round, Marvin threw 16 punches. Wow. Um, where, and afterwards, I, was talking, I remember talking to Ray, and he said he thought for sure that Marvin was going to jump all over him, come in the southpaw stance, mm -hmm. crowd him, bully him, muscle him, throw him on the can, every, anything possible to, to throw Ray off his game. And Marvin came out in the orthodox stance and tried to box with Ray. Ray got in his head and stayed there. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. It, and he also would, I know he started quick, but he also did something at the end. I don't know if that was your suggestion or something that they came up with too, was that at the, he would flurry at the end of every round and kind yeah. of give the judges, I mean, the guys do that today all the time, but that's probably the most infamous our most uh, notable time where you saw uh, Leonard kind of flurry at the end of every round. That's probably one of the more debatable fights. Uh, yeah, that's an old that's an old Muhammad Ali trick that Ray picked up. Probably um, from Angelo Dundee, right? Probably, yeah, Dundee yeah, and, and and Ali Dunlop as well. Where yeah. 
you know, 30 seconds. I, if you watch that fight, you could hear Ali in the mm-hmm. background, 30, 30 seconds. And then Ray would, would flurry. Because the thinking is you give the judges, it stays fresh in the judge's mind. You know, they may have obviously watched the first two and a half minutes of a round, but if it's close round, and a lot of those rounds were close, yeah. Ray would do a little uh, shoe shine or, or, you know, pick up the pace over the last 30 seconds with hopes that, you know, he would, uh, the, the round, would, that, that activity would stay fresh with the judges and get him the round if there was any doubt. Yeah, and uh, now that the numbers are so visible and they're out there a lot more, we don't really do that type of service. Uh, but there are, I do get hit up a lot from trainers, uh, some fighters, they want to know, their opponents punch numbers. They want us to work on uh, send a, a report, but that's that must have been a pretty exciting time. But also, kind of jumped over something uh, which was in 1985, and that's the rise of Mike Tyson. Uh, you were front and center for that. Uh, you were also there for the fall of Mike Tyson. You were there for the comeback of Mike Tyson. Uh, that must have been a wild time, uh, not just to be like a boxing fan, just to be a sports fan. But the fact that you were there, what was your first um, recollection of Tyson? That he was, we were like, like in awe of him. What was the first fight? fight? The first time we saw him was up in uh, upstate New York. We didn't work the fight, but we went up to watch to see him. It was an ABC fight. Mm -hmm. And just the way his ring entrance, his aura was incredible. Um, It's just something, and of course, we were kind of new to being ringside as well. So I'd never seen anything like it. You know, on TV, you see certain fighters and they look intimidating, but to get into an actual venue, sit ringside, watch, look at, watch him, um, you know, coming in the ring with no robe, no, no socks, just, uh, just straight, you know, straight fire um, was, was intimidating. I could imagine what the opponent must have felt like. First fight we did, um, I think it was a fight in the garden. I don't, I think, I don't recall who it was, Reggie Gross or so. I'm, I don't recall exactly who it was, but I do recall how fast his hands were for a heavyweight. He was one of the toughest guys to, to track because um, you didn't know what he was going to throw. He, he worked off the jab, but then after that, you didn't know what he was going to throw. So you couple in the intimidation factor with the, with the fast hands. And he was just, a, he was just something that, you know, we that most people had never seen before, um, especially our generation of, of, of fight fans. Yeah. It must've been something. I remember we had Joe Tessitore on the show and he would go up there as well. You're probably in the same room with him. He was, he's a little younger than you, but he would go out because the fights would be like Verona or somewhere. Yeah. He was fighting a lot upstate uh, in the early days. He didn't even go by Iron Mike. I think he went by Kid Dynamite. Like uh, Albany, too. He fought yeah. up in the Albany area, Catskill area, because that's where Customato's right. uh, home was. So he kept them busy up up in that area. Yeah. So it must have been nuts to see Yeah, Tyson. Between Tyson and 85, uh, you know, coming on the scene, and then you had the Four Kings. Uh, you had, uh, you know, Chavez Sr. Uh, doing his thing, too. That was a great time in, in, in boxing. And you're right in the middle of it, uh, CompuBox, at that point. Uh, you know, you're three, four years in. And then comes the 90s when the fall of Mike Tyson. You were there, Japan, uh, for Mike Tyson versus Buster Douglas, which still, uh, as of today, is one of the biggest upsets, not just in boxing, uh, but all of sports. That is a had to have been an experience. That was was an odd, bizarre um, uh, experience because the fight started at 12 noon in Japan because HBO wanted to put it live um, in the States. So we 
we will get we got to work it was eight in the morning i think when we when we uh, set up at ringside um and it was very quiet i remember it i'm like i remember looking around i'm like this place looks full but why is it so quiet the fight starts and the silence remains uh, we have the headset on i can hear douglas is beating tyson like a drum right really from the first round on just landed punches, clean punches, and there's like no reaction from the crowd. The round would be over, and then you would get a gentle, like a, a polite applause from the Japanese fans. That's how they reacted to. Meanwhile, like you said, it's probably one of the biggest upsets in all of sports going down. And uh, sure enough, when he finally um, not knocked Tyson out, everybody was like, was like in shock. And I remember sitting, I was sitting next to Evander Holofield because he was supposed to fight Tyson next. This this fight with, with Buster Douglas was just, was like a, a stay busy fight for Tyson. Don King, uh, you know, probably got an outrageous sight feed from the Tokyo Dome mm -hmm. to bring Tyson over there. And this, and Douglas was always an iffy kind of fighter. When he was on, he was good. But most most times he, he, he wasn't known, you know, to give 100%. Well, this particular night, he fought the best fight of his life. And uh, I remember sitting next to Evander Holofield, and he had this shocked look on his face. Because there went, at the time, I think it was like $12 million payday down the drain, what they eventually did fight. But it was just a surreal evening um, from, from the beginning. Because um, no one expected Douglas to, uh, to, to beat Tyson the way he did. And like I said, the reaction from the crowd was like, you know, it was like it was like a little league, uh, little league baseball game. It was like, oh, so it was very bizarre evening, to wow. say the least. So just that puts kind of into perspective a little bit of the fact that you were there for Hagler Hearns, uh, Leonard Hagler, Tyson Douglas, which I mean, as a fight fan, I mean, those are ones that you could you would just dream about being at. And uh, that's just it's, it's nuts. And and a couple two months two months after Tyson Douglas, mm -hmm. we were in Vegas for um, for Chavez and Meldrick Taylor, yep. which was another bond burner on regular HBO. I mean, so the fan boxing fans back then got Tyson Douglas and Chavez Meldrick Taylor in a in a three month span on regular HBO. Yeah, and that fight came up recently. We we're, were talking about this past November, how we had back to like, great fights. And uh, I think someone on Twitter said, well, how about they I'll uh, one up you is, uh, you know, Taylor versus I mean, uh, Meldrick Taylor versus Chavez was like, was it months or was it a few weeks after? Tyson it was Chavez? it was in March of 90. Yeah. So it was two months. It was two months after Tyson. No, it was a month after Tyson. Tyson mm -hmm. was in February. It was a month yeah. later. Wow. In fact, they they promoed. They promo Chavez Taylor on the Tyson Douglas coming yeah. up in March, yeah. like in another historic fight. So by the time we're, we're getting to the '90s now, like the heavyweights were, were big, and um, what was your recollection of that? I know you were there for Fan Man, you were there for the Bo Galata. I know these are like quirky moments, but I mean that's like the when I think of the early '90s from like '90 90 to '95, the first thing that comes to mind is is the heavyweights. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it started with uh, Lennox Lewis in the 88 Olympics. We were there in Korea when he won the gold medal. Mm -hmm. uh, he beat Riddick Bowe, actually, in a, in a gold medal match. Um, and then they turned pro. And then uh, they eventually, they never fought 
as professionals, but then Bo um, eventually won a heavyweight title. And that was one of, another one of the more memorable fights was uh, Bo Holofield won at the uh, Thomas and Mac in Vegas. Nobody really knew, they knew who Bo was, but Holofield was, you know, was known as, uh, you know, he was unbeatable at the time, seemingly unbeatable. Bo came into in great shape, actually fought, they fought more of a toe-to-toe fight than anyone expected. Bo got the decision. Um, and then they would fight two more fights after that. And then Lennox came along um, and, uh, you know, was dominated on his end. It's very unfortunate that him and Bo never fought. But Lennox, you know, was dominant uh, in his own right and eventually uh, went on to fight Tyson. So, yeah, there were some great heavyweights, even Ray Mercer, uh, Tommy Morrison, Michael Mora, Herbie Hyde. There's a long list of of heavyweights uh, in the 90s who get overlooked, who today would probably, you know, would be right at the top. Yeah, I know. These guys were overlooked because of Tyson, because of Lennox Lewis, because of uh, Evander Holofield, who actually started as a cruiserweight. Let's not forget that. You bring up Tommy Morrison. Uh, bring up Tommy Morrison. Uh, you got to tell the story of when Michael Bent, who's been on our show before, knocked out Tommy Morrison, and then you were on a, a private plane with Bob Arum. <laughs> yeah, well, Tommy Morrison uh, had a signed contract to fight Lennox Lewis for like $10 million. But they talked him into defending his title like a hometown um, de- uh, defense in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So they brought in um, they brought in Michael Bent, who uh, you know was a decent puncher, but not known for ha- having a great chin. So they figured that you know they get the payday and then move on to Lennox Lewis. So uh, turns out that Bent knocks out uh, Tommy Morris in one round. So after the fight, uh, Aaron, we we flew on a top ranked jet because we had a show the next night in Arizona. So we're sitting in the back of the plane and uh, somebody on the plane had a, had a problem and needed to use the restroom. And uh, on his way back, Aram says to the, uh, to the guy, here, use this to take care of business because it's, it's useless. The, you know, the contract meant nothing now that, that Tyson and uh, that, that uh, Lewis and, uh, and Holyfield weren't going to meet. So it was just uh you had to be there, but it was a hilarious uh, line. By <laughs> you can use this. This contract is useless. I use this to wipe. Yeah, yeah. Use this to wipe to put it put it mildly. <laughs> that's Aram for you. That's that's wild. Yeah, those were the the glory days of the heavyweights. And then by that time, you know, De La Hoya's on the scene. I'm going to jump ahead to, to Pacquiao, Canel uh, Whitaker, Canel I mean... Whitaker. Those are all uh, great moments in the early '90s. You know the timeline by now. And then. I'm just trying to show the uh, fans at home that are listening or, or, or watching just like kind of the scope of how long uh, you've been around the sport and how long CompuBox has been it, in it. It goes all the way back to Hagler Hearns and, and you go through uh, that heavyweight era. You go through the Pernell Whitakers, you go Chavez to De La Hoya to Pacquiao to Mayweather to now to this current era that we're in. And we uh, have been along for the ride. You have been along for the ride. You've seen all different eras of boxing you've seen all different uh rises and falls as we just touched on what would you say like how would you rate this era in terms of like the fighting style to what you've seen 
uh, in the past? Um, there's a lot of good good fighters around today. There's always there's guys in every weight class that probably would hold their own in any other era, but not as many of them. There's not as deep as it was back in the day. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is they just don't fight enough today. These guys fight maybe two fights a year um, and they don't have the extensive uh, amateur background that these guys had either back in the 80s and 90s. Um, because the amateur program isn't what it once was. So they're kind of pushed along. Um, you know, there's great fighters. The great fighters are great fighters. Um, guys like Boots Ennis, you know, Crawford, Spence. They would have held their own, I think, in any era. But um, back then, there was more good fighters. I mean, we worked these top-ranked series on ESPN. Um, it started in 89, and we worked it, we worked it right through uh, almost to 2000. Top rank was with ESPN. And week after week, we saw, you know, solid fights. Um, so there was a deeper roster of fighters back then. Um, today, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good fighters, but not as many. And it, it comes from, I think, from basically from a weaker amateur system. And, and they just don't fight as frequently today because of, you know, the politics of the game. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a little troubling to, if you think about it. And that's true because Friday night, when Friday night fights went off the air, I know that wasn't exactly the top rank thing, but I think it, it somehow evolved from the top rank deal into Friday night fights. And that left a big void. I mean, I know a lot of fight fans were upset when that went off the air because it was every week. It wasn't like the biggest of shows. It wasn't didn't have a huge budget. It wasn't huge main events, but it just like it was like the minor leagues in a, in a way. It was like, uh, you know, it was developmental. You need that. And, and I do agree that the amateur system is, is not what it once was. Uh, pandemic certainly didn't hasn't helped in terms of grassroots uh, shows. You know, Lou DeBell is a, is a good friend of ours and. Uh, you know, he hasn't been able to put on sh consistent uh, shows uh, at the club level. So the younger guys who are making their debuts or fighting these four and six, eight rounders are not getting any work. So uh, it's it's scary a little bit because you think about it and there's no like it's not like a league where there's a minor leagues and you have a set game, a set of schedules. It's kind of everyone's kind of all on their own there. Yeah, it's it's the separate platforms now. You know, as you know, there's there's the zone, there's ESPN, there there's Fox. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, hopefully that'll change as uh, time goes on. Um, maybe one of these, it's possible a platform will drop out and 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 they'll incorporate with another and keep these guys busier too. Another thing too with the top rank back in the day, um, one thing about they matched these fighters tough, like Ron Katz and Bruce Trample back then. They got, if you talk to Katz, he'll tell you, he got many a contender knocked off because of the top rank series on, on ESPN. They, they had a certain level of fights. And like you said, this is what the fans look forward to. They knew you, you knew you were going to get solid fights every week. It wasn't the A side versus the B side where you knew A was going to, you know, take out the B side in, in, in a matter of minutes. So, um, you know, it was a good time and it actually developed, um, developed fighters more. And they always came out with a good B side opponent for these mm -hmm. top guys back then, too. You, you, able, you knew who these guys were. 
by the time they got their title shot, because they had fought two, three times a year on ESPN. And that, again, that's something that doesn't happen that frequently today. Hopefully that'll change. I would say Golden Boy is the closest to that, to this uh, to current day. I think they do a good job of matching tough because, you know, they almost have to. They don't have a, a huge roster. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. That's certainly uh, missing today. But 35 plus years of, of CompuBox. Uh, I work for the company. Our, uh, my, our Nick, my brother, your son uh, works for the company. You got a big family. Did you ever envision when that first meeting with Ross Greenberg uh, to Bramble Mancini to all these fights in between till, till now. Did you ever think it would, it would make it this far? Or did you think you'd have such an impact on the sport? No, I know. We honestly, I didn't have that kind of uh, vision. We were more concerned about, you know, putting out the best product week to week, you know, and uh, just keep grinding. You know, it was always, uh, there was always a little bit of criticism about the numbers. So it, it just kind of drove me to, you know, stay on the top of my game and always try to put out the best product. And uh, so far it's worked that way. And yeah, it's put uh, all five children through college, right? You guys, you and Nick are now involved on a day-to-day -day basis with the company. Uh, we got a nice lifestyle here out on Long Island. So, uh, no, I never envisioned it, but I'm very grateful that, you know, things worked out the way they did and that uh, it's become a, you know, a family affair. It's, uh, I couldn't have asked for anything more, especially for a sport that I, you know, grew up uh, uh, loving the sport of boxing. So to make a career out of something um, that I was a fan of was, again, it's, you, you, it's something that you, you, you just can't, uh, it's, it's hard to envision something like that going down, but here we are talking about it. So, um, you know, it's just been, a, it's been a great ride. And I would really? thank your mother, your mother for that too, because <laughs> she's the one that held the fort down over the years when I would be traveling. I mean, some weeks it was, uh, we had ESPN and HBO on the same weekend and, uh, your mother, uh, held the fort down and, uh, I got to give her all the credit as well. Um, because without her support, we probably wouldn't be uh, be talking about um, 35 plus years of CompuBox. So yeah. again, it's been a family affair. She might burst through the door right now and say and say thank you. But yeah, that's right. I can I can confirm that. You were gone uh, a lot of weekends, but you always made up for it during the week, and that just was part of the gig back then. It was a lot. You had to do that, uh, pay your dues. You had to travel all over. We didn't have a. Uh, you didn't have like a, a full uh, squad or team going there. I do remember that as a kid uh, uh, being on the road a lot was, and then us going to fights and stuff and having those perks, you know, growing up, sitting on George Foreman's lap or uh, getting to know Jim Lampley or uh, as the years went on, um, you know, watching Roy Jones fight a lot. He was, you know, probably the most featured HBO guy. So that was always a big trip for us as kids. And then also like the Friday night fights, um, you know, going to like a Reading, Pennsylvania, a Mystic, Connecticut. Uh, those were always fun. Blue Horizon. I think you got to see the Blue Horizon, yeah, which Philly. was a legendary place. It was 110 degrees the one night I took you and your brother, Robbie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we saw we got to see some good, good club shows as well. And now yeah. and it goes right up to this up till current day where I got to go do it. And it just feels like uh, 
you know, it's like a natural thing. When I'm in ringside for a fight, it feels like I'm weirdly, it's chaotic. It's, it's very, you know, you bring someone to a fight for the first time, they're kind of shell-shocked, but it's strange because when I sit ringside, I feel the most like calm because I've been around it since, you know, I came out of the womb. <laughs> so yeah. uh, it's been a good ride. It's been a great show. I appreciate you coming on, Bob. Uh, dad, boss, what do, I, what do I call you here? But I, I appreciate it. We'll Master. Be back. <laughs> we'll be back next week uh, with another edition of Inside Boxing Live. We'll be, we'll, we'll be previewing Keith Thurman versus Mario Barrios. We'll see you next week.